going to continue this week and perhaps next week looking at this prayer, the second prayer of the Apostle Paul in this wonderful book of Ephesians. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the Word of God. Last week, we looked at this prayer uh, of Paul's. This is his second prayer, as I said. And basically, in the prayer, he makes three petitions. He makes three requests. And those requests are, first of all, he prays for power. That the Ephesian church would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he prays for love. That they would comprehend, that they would understand, that they would know the love of Christ. And that love of Christ is multidimensional. It's the love He has for you and I. It's the love He has for His world. It's the love that you and I are to uh, carry around in us and express to others. It's all of that. And then finally, He prays for their lives to be filled with a certain fullness uh, that becomes uh, unassailable by the problems of this world. In other words, it's not that they won't have trouble, they will have trouble. It's not that they uh, won't suffer, but that somehow those sufferings and those problems and those troubles will not tear them down, will not completely destroy them. And so he prays for this, and, and we looked at these three things last week. I asked you, where is your power? Where do you get your power? Is it yourself, or are you looking inside to the power of the Spirit. How do you love? There's a way to love and a way not to love. We looked at that. And what fills uh, your life? But in the background of these three petitions, something else is running. It's kind of like the, the, here's my iPhone. I have my iPhone this morning and it's telling me that I have about 27 minutes to go. Uh, the, The All of you are familiar with a computer. And you know when you turn your computer on or you punch an app in your iPhone or your iPad, or if you happen to be one of those unfortunate people that uses an Android phone. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, the, if you, you turn your computer on, you punch an app, you know, it just pops up. It just, ha- it just starts. But those of you that know about a little bit about computers, you don't have to know much. You know that for all that to start, for you to open Word, the, the Word, which I use a lot, Word, Microsoft Word, to open that, a whole lot of other things start happening in the background that you never see in order to make that 
thing appear on your computer screen. And that, although that's a modern application, is a lot like our lives. A lot goes on behind the scenes for you to love somebody. A lot has to happen for you to really experience power and fullness of life. And I think the Apostle Paul, while he prays for these three things, he's also telling us that we need to look and understand what is going on in the background of our lives if we're truly, if the prayers that we make are going to have any kind of um, honesty, authenticity, sincerity, meaning, even when prayers are a little dry. And I've been there in my life and, and not like this morning. I mean, that's how quickly you can feel dry and you feel like you're praying and there's nobody listening. But Paul is saying, no, make your petitions and in the background, look for these things running And so I'm going to give you very quickly, this may frighten some of you, but I'm going to give you seven things. Now, I will get you out of here by four to see the Super Bowl. No, I'll do it quickly. These seven things. Here's what we're going to look at. And there may be more. I've just picked seven because these are the ones that stood out to me and seven's a cool number. Uh, So here's these seven things we're going to look at. First, glory, priority, the object of your faith. How do you assess Assessing true faith in your life. What is the shape of faith? Knowing versus knowing about. And finally, living, living praise. Living praise. Those seven things. I won't repeat them. We'll go through them slowly one at a time. Look at verse 16 very quickly. First thing he runs in the background of his prayers is this idea of glory. In fact, he repeats it here. He actually begins his prayer with glory, and he ends it in his doxology in verse 21, which we'll look at in a moment. He ends it with glory. Glory. He says, I pray that you will be filled with glory according to the riches of His glory. See, there's this idea of glory in the Bible, and I don't know how it got going. Well, I kind of do. I think that when we think of glory, we're thinking of uh, some sparkly, shiny thing that's out there, and you know, it's 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 kind of like the uh, the good witch in the Wizard of Oz who comes. You know, what was her name? Uh, who, Glenda? Yeah, you know the good. She comes in a bubble, and she comes and she's sparkly and glowing, and that's kind of what we think of glory. But glory in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the idea of kavod. This is weightiness. It's heaviness. It's the idea of meaning and significance. It's what you uh, read sometimes in the news today. Gravitas. It's that weight of significance. And, And God says He has glory and that He shares that glory with nobody and nothing. That it's unique to Him. And yet, we read also at the same time in our Bibles that He has in some way, even though He says, I share it with nobody and nothing, He does share it with us, His human beings, His creation. And He shares it in some way with His creation itself. In other words, the the psalm, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory 
of God. There's something weighty when you look up at the stars at night and if you're even the slightest bit contemplative and you think about what that all is, it can weigh on you and it can also lift you and thrill your heart. And there's a glory that we see in people, human beings. And there's a majestic and unspeakable glory that we see and saw and understand in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that glory, significance, meaning, purpose, the thing that we all want for our lives and for the lives of our children, for our church, for our nation, for our career. We want that. We want significance. We want to know that what we're doing matters. We want to know that somebody somewhere will remember us. I told the session a few weeks ago that when we get this building, God willing, if we get this building, I don't want my name on any part of that building. I don't want this room dedicated to me. I don't want my name on that part of the building or hall remembering Pastor Chuck in his time. I want to be remembered. I want my life to be remembered. And I want you to burn this down into your soul that your life needs to be remembered by one person that God remembers you. That He will never forget you. That in His eternal world, your name is written in His hand. And He will never forget you. That's where we get our glory, our significance, our ultimate meaning. It has to be there. Because everything else fades. Buildings fall down. Names get erased. Nations rise. Nations fall. Fortunes are made. Fortunes are lost. And all of those things are fine and good in their own time and in their own way. But folks, I'm telling you something that is more significant and more real. And Paul says that glory has got to be running in the background of your life. That passion to have Jesus Christ know you and to be known by Him because that is your treasure in heaven and it can never be taken away from you. Moth and rust cannot corrupt. A thief cannot break in and steal. If you give your heart to Jesus Christ, He promises to write your name in His hand. He will never forget you. The glory of God. That's got to run in the background of your prayers and of your life. Secondly, the priority of the inner life. That's the second part of this. He says, I pray that you are strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. What he's saying is this, folks, and listen carefully because I think a lot of us really don't get this and it is not easy to live this out. And that is the principle that character, character is always to trump giftedness. And unfortunately, most of us live our lives on our giftedness, our inherent talent. And, and you know, there's nothing wrong with being talented. I, you know, I've known Paulette, I don't know how, as long as I've been here. And I'm amazed that she can sit at the piano and do what she does. I can't believe when I listen to Raul and Sarah sing how they can do that, how they can sing. And, and many of you have gifts, other kinds of gifts. 
And we tend to go to those gifts and depend on those gifts. And it's okay. God has given you those gifts. But when those gifts become you, there's a danger. Because our voices fail. Our fingers don't work as well as they used to. Our minds are not as clear. Especially when you, when you hit 70 or 80 or 90, right? I mean, I just turned 60 and I feel like I did when I was 20. Things start to fade. They're not working quite as well. And you know that. Our giftedness is great. But character can never be taken away. You see, who you are in the inner man cannot be stolen from you. Let me give you a few scriptures very quickly. You know these. These are not uh, unusual. But if you don't concentrate on the inner man, you know, we all want to work out. I go to the gym three, four times a week. Uh, you know, I try to eat right. And I do those things. We all do that. But what about the inner man? What are we doing to take care of the inner man? The writer of Proverbs, the sage, he was saying, you know, the instruction of your mother and your father, the Word of God that your parents, he's talking to a, a son primarily, and he's saying the instruction that the, your godly parents are giving you, he says this, they are, listen, they are life to you. They're life to you. And life to those that find them. They're healing to your flesh. In other words, they're They'll make you healthy. Maybe not physically healthy, but whole and well. Keep, listen, keep your heart with all diligence, with all vigilance. Keep your heart, because out of it flow the issues of life. What flows out of you. That inner man, the springs, the wellsprings of life. Jesus restated it. He said the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. In other words, what you, uh, what you put into your heart and the care that you take for the inner man is how you're going to be. Speaking was uh, uh, tied to being. We can't get into all that right now. Paul said, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Paul understood that your inner character was going to be how you spoke, how you talk. And he wasn't thinking of curse words and all of that. He was talking about the way you view the world around you and the way you talk about it. Now, some of us are wired, you know, Rick, has told me that I'm Eeyore. And that's probably true. You know, I'm always, you know, oh God, I've got to eat this dirt over here and everything's going to, and I don't know if it's going to be. And some of you are Tigger. You know, you're always bouncing up and down on your tail. And everything's wonderful. And some people are somewhere in between. And we're wired that way. But what Paul is saying is that Underneath that, in the inner man, we should be building character. And you know what? In 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, he is going to hammer. It's going to come like a flood, folks. And so he's preparing us for that. 
with a prayer of love, power, and fullness of life, and these things that are running in the background. What's running in the background? Ask yourself this this morning. Ask, what is really running in the background of your life? Is there a deep-seated joy that nothing can shake? Or is there anger and bitterness and resentment and hard feelings and disappointment? You know, everybody disappoints. Nobody does what I want them to do. And life is just so unsatisfying. What is running in the background? What are you hearing? My life is a failure. Things are not going well. I'm getting old. I'm, getting, I'm, I'm too young and I can't accomplish anything. What is running in the background? If you listen to that day and night and you don't answer it back with what God has said about you in His Word, that voice will overtake you and it will become you. And so Paul is saying, be careful of what's running in the background of your life. Glory, an understanding of glory needs to be there. The priority of the inner life to take some few minutes of your day and separate them for God and read a little bit of His Bible, read a little something, pray a little bit. How many Christians even spend five minutes a day? Do you know how the average pastor prays for, guess how, how much the average pastor in the United States prays? Guess. Guess. Go ahead, anybody. Two minutes. Five would be nice, Scott, if we could get somebody to do five. Two! Come on, folks, this is crazy. The inner life, you've got to take care of that the way we do the outer life with as much vigor. Third, quickly, the object of our faith. Look at 17a. This is running in the background. The object of our faith. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Jesus told His disciples on the night that He would be arrested, they were in the upper room, and He told them, He said something so amazing that I think it just goes over the top of our head. We don't even think about it. He said to them this. Listen, folks, He said this. You believe in God, believe also what? In me. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The Jewish people were and still are fervently monotheistic. One God. You with me? Everybody on track? They were to believe in what? Not many gods, but what? One God. And Jesus (laughs) told a group of 12 Jewish men this. You believe in God, I want you also to believe in me. Yikes! What he's saying is this, folks. You can trust a lot of things, and most of us do. You can have faith, I've told you. You can have faith in your faith. You can believe that faith is a force that you have And that you have to exercise that force. Faith is a force. And words, one the largest movement in the United States right now, the word faith movement, says this. Faith is a force and words are the container of the force. And therefore you can have what you say. You just speak. And you can have it. That's one of the fastest growing movements in the United States. in, In American evangelicalism. Because faith becomes a force, a power that you have. And so we talk about faith like it's a muscle. Well, I have to exercise my faith. I have to work my faith. I have to do these things to my faith. 
But the Bible never speaks about faith in that way. The Bible speaks about faith is as a surrender, a, a reaction, not an action. A reaction. Jesus went up to blind men and He would say crazy things like this. Do you believe that I am able to do this? The emphasis on I. Do you believe I am able to do this? And they would say, yes, we believe you are able to do this. And Jesus would say to them, be it unto you according to your faith. You see, He was making Himself the object of our faith. You cannot have faith in your faith because your faith is going to... What happens, I've told you this for how many years now, folks? Christ the King. Folks, your faith is going to do what? What? It's going to go up and down. Some days it's going to be strong and weak. Some days it's going to be successful. Some days it's going to be fail, uh, uh, fail you. But what about Him? He's the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. And so the great Presbyterian preacher Horatius Bonar said, it doesn't matter the quality or quantity of your faith. What matters is the object in which you put your faith. Put your faith in Jesus and then the paltry, little doubting, mixed up kind of faith, that becomes as strong as the thing in which it's being put. Do you see that? The boy, the, the father with the son who was throwing himself into the fire with a demon, he, he's, he, the, the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus comes and casts, and then, and he casts a demon out. But he asks the Father, he says, do you believe? And the Father says, I believe. <laughs> but what? Help my unbelief. I believe, I do believe, but it's not that great right now. My son is burning in this fire over here. Help my unbelief. You see? And Jesus saw his faith. What faith? The faith in him. And he responded. It takes all the onus, all the burden off of you to believe, and it puts all the onus and all the burden on shoulders made to carry the burden His. And so you come with all that weakness and all that junk and all that doubt, and you lay them on Jesus' shoulders, and they become strong in Him. So the object of our faith, that has to be running in the background. Paul is very... Very clear. Fourthly, quickly, assessing true faith. The church is full of people that do not have true faith. He says this true faith that he just taught, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen, here it goes. Look at verse 17, end of the verse. Rooted and grounded in love. In other words, your faith, if it's true faith, if you want to assess true faith, do I have it or not? It is going to be rooted and grounded in love. Love is the acid test of Christianity. Let me say it again. Listen, folks. Love is the acid test of Christianity. And love is not some syrupy, sentimental emotion. It is a practice. It is an act. It is a choice. It is a feeling. I told you last week, it's all of that. It's more complicated than we like to just make it in these books that say love is a choice. You know, all that. It's more than that. 
But it is an action that you perform, that you do, that you choose. And it's the acid test of Christianity. This is my commandment that I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another. How? How? The same way I've loved you. He explains it. That's about as simple as you can get. I want you to love one another the same way I've loved you. Do you know if we actually started to do this, people would go, wow, Christianity really is different. The reason that the world can look at us and see no difference between us and Buddhism and Islam and anything else is because what? We really don't love. And that is the acid test of Christianity. And we're going to look at that. You're going to see Paul hammers this over and over and over again, so I won't belabor it uh, this morning. But that's how you assess true faith. Do you love? Do you truly love? The way He loves you, do you love others? And that brings us to the fifth one, the shape of faith. Paul is not just saying all these things in a vacuum. He is creating a background for these petitions. And this is running in the background, the shape of your faith. Look at verse 18. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth. You know, I told you last week, he's, I don't know why he used four dimensions, and I didn't find a scholar that knew why he used four dimensions, because we usually describe things in three. But one of the explanations, Paul may have been thinking of the temple that he referred to back in 221, I think, when he said, you are living stones, you're being built up into a temple. And he may have been thinking in terms of this, this, this structure that is spacious in every direction. Are you with me? Spacious, roomy. Not that you tolerate sin, but that you're tolerant. Do you, can you make the distinction, folks? Are we so, so rigid that we cannot make the distinction, not be nuanced enough to understand the difference between Tolerating sin and tolerance. Christians, some of them, are very intolerant. But I'm telling you this morning, I want our church, I want to be, and I want our church to be the most tolerant people this world has ever seen. I want you to do it this way. Here's what spacious love, this is the shape of love. This is what it looks like in its crispest and clearest form. A woman dragged in the dirt to Jesus because she was caught in adultery. They didn't suspect her, they caught her. And they didn't bring the other guy with her with them. They brought her and they dragged him and threw her at his feet and they said to him, The law, which is true, the law says she must die. And Jesus didn't object one bit. He got down and He wrote something in the ground. Nobody knows what He wrote. We don't want to speculate. I don't even imagine what He wrote. Whatever it was, it was pretty good. So whatever He's writing in the ground, He's writing and they keep pressing Him. 
And then he stands up and what does he say? You know the story. Let him without sin, what? Cast the first stone. Knock yourselves out. She deserves to die. I don't disagree with anybody here, all you Pharisees and scribes. You've got the law right. Go ahead and kill her. But, here's my condition. Let the one without sin throw the first stone. And what did they do? They drop, each one drops their stones. They walk away. And it's nobody left. And John goes to Lynx. He says, nobody's left. Just Jesus and the woman. He turns to the woman and he says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? But who's still there? Jesus is still there. And she answers, no one, Lord. And He says this, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Or go and leave your life of sin, is what He was saying. Don't return back to the pigsty. Leave your life of sin. That, folks, in a nutshell, is absolute rich, blow your mind tolerance and love and spaciousness for a woman caught in sin. And at the same time, in the same moment, in the same tension, a complete and total intolerance for the sin itself. Why? Because if she left that gracious moment with the Savior who had the right to condemn her and didn't, and said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. If she leaves that and returns to her life of sin, she is now in slavery and liable to die. Because she could have gotten caught when? Again. And could have been dragged again and have been to court and maybe he wouldn't have been there to save her. Unbelievable spaciousness and at the same time rigid intolerance for sin. And folks, if you get this story backwards, you don't have Christianity, you don't have the Gospel, you don't have anything. Take that story and take Jesus' words and reverse them and you no longer have Christianity. Go and sin no more and I will not condemn you. Christianity always comes to you and I spaciously and saying to you, I don't condemn you. Now, live for me. Do you see it? Exodus chapter 19 always comes before 20 where the Ten Commandments are. 19, God says through Moses to the, to the nation, He says, I brought you out on eagles' wings. I cherished you. I treasured you to Myself to make you a people. Now hear these words. These ten words. Do you see the difference? That's got to run in the background of your life. And finally, the last two, very quickly. Knowing versus knowing about. Look at 19a, the first part. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, love characterizes the very being of Jesus Christ. In fact, John said, God is love. God is so identified with His love that Paul, that 
John could go all the way and say God is love. Now you can't reverse that and say love is God, can you? Yeah, right? Are you all awake? You can't reverse it because love is not God. God is love. And love, knowing it versus knowing about it, is what I want for you and me. What I want for Christ the King, for our church, is that you truly know love, not just know about it. You can know it up in your head and not know it in your heart. Here's how you know if it's in your heart. Are you ready for this? I read this 20-some years ago and I've never been able to forget it since. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. Listen, here's how you know if you know love and not just know about it. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. Impenetrable. Irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly be safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. That's where you're safe. Okay, who wants to go? Do you see? Love is costly. Love is going to require sacrifice. Love is going to ask you to take risks. Love's going to push you into places where you do not want to go. And when you get there, it's going to be unrewarding, unfulfilling, and sometimes very disappointing. And you can get hurt. In fact, I'm going to promise you this morning, you will be hurt if you love anything. Now I hurt. I hurt the one I love more than anything in this world. And it wasn't my wife. It was my Savior. I hurt Him. And I did it over and over and over again. Just like most of you. I have hurt my Savior. And do you know what happens when I hurt Him? And I feel bad and I go back to Him and I get on my knees and I say, Lord, I'm sorry, I just, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I hurt you again. Do you know what He says to me 100% of the time? I love you. Come here. Have you ever, has anyone in this room ever heard anything else? Ever? Have you ever heard Him say, no, get back? I can't take you anymore. Never. 
He always embraces us with that love. For God so loved. He loved in this way. He gave His Son. God demonstrates His love like this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no one than this. That He lays down His life for His friends. I'm challenging you folks, and Paul will challenge you as well. We've got to practice love. Practice it, not fake it. And it's going to be costly. It's going to be risky. It may very well hurt you. But at the end of the day, if you do it, you will, you will soar. Your Christianity will soar. We could become a new humanity, which is really what Paul's getting at. He wants us to be a new kind of humanity that truly love, that practice love, even when it hurts us back. We tolerate, we are open, we love, we're spacious, but we don't tolerate the sin that kills because we love the person. And finally, living praise. Look at 20 and 21. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly above and beyond all infinitely more, the Greek says, than we could ask or think according to the power of worth. To Him be glory. You know, I'm reading Tim Keller's book on prayer right now. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Keller says this, All prayer, listen, All prayer, whether it's lament or complaint or grief or sorrow or hurt or confession of sin or distress or fear, whatever it is, all the kinds of prayer that you can imagine, all the kinds that we read in the book of Psalms, all the kinds of prayer, petition, all of them. If you continue, if you stay in your, if you continue praying and you keep praying and you keep going and you persevere and you don't give up on God and you continue to lay it before Him, you keep knocking and asking and seeking, you stay with it. All prayer eventually leads to praise. The entire Psalter, 150 beautiful, incredible, Holy Spirit-inspired prayers, all of them end with, with 140, 141, 142, 143. All end with prayers that have no petition. They're just simply praise. Because all of the Psalter, all of the heartache, all the lament, all the petitions, all the everything... The, the psalmists and all of the people that edited the book and put it together all knew that if you keep going and keep going, you will arrive now unto Him who is able to do far more abundantly above beyond all that we could ask. We'll reach Him. All prayer will take us to praise. And the only thing, folks, that will move us in that direction is knowing the only thing that will move us to that kind of abundance is knowing that God Himself took the most abundant, far beyond, best thing, the very best He had, His Son, His only Son, and gave Him up for us. That has to run in the background of your life. You know You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How He was rich, but for your sakes became poor, so that through His poverty, you might become rich. Though He was in the form of God, 
He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but instead he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in that human form. Listen. He humbled Himself to death. Even death on a cross. Do you see it, folks? That reality will take you to praise. That will give you a life of praise and worship. Deep abiding worship that nothing can touch. These are the things that have got to run in the background of your life. And I pray you'll do it. He did it for us. Let's do it for Him. Father, we love You and thank You for Your goodness and mercy that You displayed in Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we get prepared to go into this part of Ephesians where you are going to roll out one thing after another for us to do. And some of it is so, so difficult that we will look to You and to Your grace and Your mercy, what You've done, who You've made us, that we can embrace these things with joy and gladness and become the people You want us to be, the men and women and boys and girls that You have created us to be, that we will find our identity in You completely and in so doing love this world and love the people around us in ways that will dazzle the world around us i pray you'll do that father help us to do it in christ's name amen